Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Today our guest is Edwin Kwan. He is the head of application and software security at Tyra Payment. We spoke about how security has evolved from when Tyra was a startup to now. We also spoke about if someone is starting off building an application security practice today, how can they build engineering and security practices within an engineering space or their product space so that it can scale really well? I hope you get really value out of this. Some of the topics we also discussed were failures of DevSecOps, which is probably a good thing that we only talk about success publicly, so good to know about the failures as well. And we also went into what does it require or how do you change the security mindset to be more open towards security. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, we appreciate if you leave us a review or feedback on iTunes or Spotify. And if you have any questions, I do appreciate the people who came on LinkedIn Live as well and Twitch. Um, always appreciate the comments there and a special thank you to people who've been reaching out and giving me different topics and different guests to introduce and get, uh, I guess, get on the show. So if you are one of those, thank you. Uh, special shout out to you guys. You know who you are. And for the others who would like to do the same, feel free to connect with me, Ashish Rajan on LinkedIn. The link is on the show notes as well. And looking forward to talking to you in the next episode or outside of the episode over at LinkedIn or Twitch or wherever, right? I hope you have an awesome day. And this is Edwin Kwan here for you. Start off with the obvious question, Edwin. For people who don't know Edwin, um, who are you? <laughs> and where can where what should they know about you? <laughs> so my name is Edwin Kwan. I'm actually based in Sydney, so I know you're in Melbourne, uh, so we're not too far off. Um, and I look after application security um, at Tyro Payments. So I've been doing that for for a couple of years now, and. Um, I started my journey or the security journey for Tyro when we were trying to get our our full banking license. Um, and I think that was that was over over five years ago now. So we started that journey. Um, when we started, um, Tyro was only just doing app post terminals. So we were doing that for quite a while and we decided to become a full bank and uh, to get our banking license. And when you do that, you need to do more than just um, FPOS transactions or card payment transactions. You need to do loans, deposits, and everything. So because of that, we needed to offer more products and we need to offer more interfaces for our customers to actually, I guess, manage their money. And we uh, obviously have a large, la uh, much greater attack surface area because of that. And hence, we had to uh, increase our uh, application security um, to be at a level that's sort of uh, that's acceptable or appropriate for that level of risk. So, what was your path into cybersecurity? So, I started off as a, a software engineer actually. So, I started off writing the code, um, and it's quite interesting. So, everyone in the team actually has a software engineering uh, or software testing background. So, we, I guess, everyone started off knowing how the code works or knowing how to test it, and then we transition into security. So, that's that's the background. Would you say, like, for some of the student audience that I have, would you say having a software engineering background is an advantage getting into application security? Um, absolutely. So I definitely would say that having that, because you you actually understand or appreciate um, some of the challenges that um, the developers are facing with uh, application security. And one of the good things 
with having that kind of background is you're actually doing security with the uh, developers. You're not just you know tossing tickets across the fence, going hey, there's an issue, there's an issue. You focus on how to uh, detect the issue, but you also can focus on how to address and fix it and provide some sort of remediation uh, to the oh, issues right. that you have discovered. And probably a good segue into, uh, for people who don't know application security or software security, what, what does that really mean? Like, what does that job entail? That's a very interesting question. I actually ask quite a few people what their thoughts are between application security and software security. And I, and I hear so many different uh, answers from that. So it varies from they're both one and the same. Um, and then it also has, I've heard stories where application software security is when you're building it. So it's the software development lifecycle. And once it's been developed and it's released, you release an app. You don't release software. And then it becomes the, I guess, the upkeep of it is called uh, an application security. And there's, I heard another one that says software is what you write, application is what you use. Um, so it varies, but it all comes down ultimately to, um, for us, our definition of what application security is or what software security is, it's the whole life cycle of whatever we build um, or whatever we integrate with. And all the way from, I guess, when we start with the ideation of a product all the way until it's, uh, to, to the end of its life cycle where it gets the commission. So just making sure that every step of it is looked after, the maintenance, the patching, and you know, all at the end of it too. Software and how to protect it. But would you say there's another layer to it with the whole, uh, I guess, threat landscape and uh, whether, whether you're releasing product versus apps? Is there like that, even that subtlety has a difference? Um, I, I wouldn't say so. Like some people would, but I think it's all, it's all it's they're all just as important and they're all, it's, um, the subtlety, I guess, is in the way you think about it. But other than that, I think it's the same thing. So um, you think about it really early. You, you do the threat modeling. You do that in software. Or you do it in, in, in the application side of it too. But, and then when you release it, you still need to make sure you uh, stay on top of the threats that are coming in. You know, you're, you're patching your apps. Um, you're uh, keeping on top with any updates in there. So... I would say that it would still be the same group of people managing it the whole way. So I would say it's one and they're both the same. Oh, they're both the same. Oh, sweet. Okay. And to, to your point, um, I guess probably another way to put this is like, if someone's from a cloud infrastructure background and being cloud security podcast, it so does the does application security side change between say, um, I've got, I've got folks in here who have a cloud, cloud background. They started off working in engineering space in the cloud, developing infrastructure as code. And uh, just for them, is app application security, does it change between cloud versus on-prem, what they would have seen before? So my view is um, if it's not safe to do it on-prem, it's also not safe to do it in the cloud. So it's oh, nice. still the same thing. The principles are the same. Uh, just because you're doing it in the cloud doesn't make anything different. Because what does engineering security culture mean for you? So engineering security culture, um, I guess it's, so let's look at it. So engineering and security and then culture. So there's three things down there. And what does that mean? It would be where, and this is my, my take on it. It would be where security is something that is um, part of the engineering process. It's, it's, not a, it's not an afterthought. It's not a bow down. It's something that you do in there. Um, and it's something that everyone does. Um, it is just the, the, it's, 
it's like um, you know some shops do TDD where they do test driven development where you write a test before you you write the code itself. Um, yep. And you know you when you run when you try and build something you make sure that all the tests pass. If the tests don't pass, you try and fix and address the problem. So. It's it's something like that where security is just it's just a fact. It's not something that you negotiate and go, hey, you know, the security is not working, but let's can we still release it? It's it's just part of the no. It's it's not good enough. Uh, it's not acceptable. It's not something that we as an organization are comfortable with. It's not what we do down here. We if there's any security defects, we will try and address it before we actually release it. So that's that's my take on it. Yeah, and to your point, um, you've given a few talks around the topic of building a security culture as well. And earlier offline, we were talking about how that's a, that has evolved. Would you want to share some of that insight on where you saw it then and where you see it progress and evolve into now? Yeah, yeah. So I think when when we started our journey, the focus was more, we first want to make sure we get uh, management buy-in on doing security. Um, and then after that, we focus on everybody who has a part to play in the development of the software. So we then, it's, and we started off, the first thing that we did was all about awareness, just understanding why we're doing this, why is this important? Um, and we did that, I think, um, by first doing a scan of all our code, understanding what are the vulnerabilities in our system, what's, um, what are some of the flaws that we weren't aware of. And then I did a presentation mm -hmm. the year after, and then the presentation was, how to hack Tyro like it was 2015. And I kind of just showed all the vulnerabilities in there and, and how you pivot everything out. And it, and it made it more real because what we started off with was when we did training for everybody, we did the OWASP top 10 training and everyone does that, right? Or, or anyone who does security training tend to do that as a basic where you kind of learn like, oh yeah, injection attack, um, you know, XSS. And the response we all we seem to get quite a bit is, yeah, you know, those vulnerabilities are really bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, we don't do yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it not relevant for me yet. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, so, so then we went and say, hey, all right, let's let's try and kind of demonstrate why this is important, and and we are not the uh, exception. You know, this is the top ten because it applies to everybody, um, and we do it too. So, so that we start with that awareness bit, just understanding this is important. Uh, it applies to us, and then we talk about how do we actually address it. And then once we've done the awareness piece, we then went on to tooling to kind of go, how can we identify stuff automatically? Because uh, now we have, hopefully with awareness, you have buy-in in terms of this is important, we need to fix it. And yep. then we kind of go, what are the issues that we have on there? And the, the tooling had two parts of it was stuff that we write and stuff that we use. Right, The stuff that we... We write. We could write some business logic that is vulnerable. So we need to pick up on those kind of things, or we could be using libraries or open source libraries that's very popular now, um, that has vulnerabilities in them. So those are the two areas that we kind of focus on um, in there. Yeah. And um, we also did like so threat modeling and everything help with that. And and where we're evolving now too is we're using more and more open source. Um, open source allows us to build really quickly. Um, why reinvent the wheel when something already exists for the libraries that you need? You know, you, you just have yep. to write the the business logic, the, the kind of code to glue all the stuff in together, to do what you want to do. Everything else, you can get someone else to write it. And and we've been looking in, 
uh, interesting fact, I think about 85% of your source code is actually not written by you. It's written by um, open source developers. And if you use um, Node.js or, or some sort of JavaScript app, it's even greater. I've, I think someone did some research and it came out to about 97% of the code is actually not written by you. You're just pulling stuff in. Um, and really? 97%? That's a lot, man. That's a lot. And a lot of it is actually stuff that you don't use too because you pull in some code. You know, you, um, A lot of times, how do you decide or what is the... That the, the process for adding, I guess, open source code into your application. Um, where do you get the information from? You probably go to Google. You know, you search. I want to try and do this. Yep. Uh, what has it? Um, and then, um, or you might have some experiences on, on what stack overflow copy paste. I guess as, as a lot of people do. Yeah. So that's also quite bad, uh, especially when people do that, they don't upgrade the version, use the version that's available <laughs> in, in that kind yeah, of case. That's right. um, and actually, interestingly, uh, we all need to get better at how to copy and paste. You know, It's not just copy and paste, it's copy, paste, and then read it through and understand what you're actually pasting in there before you actually do it. Yeah. Um, and what we are seeing is that, um, so we're using a lot of open source libraries and those open source libraries are also using open source libraries too. So you might be pulling something in that does, uh, that helps you with, I guess, um, your uh, logging functionality. You want to do some logging, right. so you just put this library in, but that is also pulling other bits of stuff in there. And what we're finding is that 85% is not written by you, um, but you're only using a small subset of that. The rest of it is just there, it's running. And um, the interesting bit is, you are probably clueless about it because we have things like, hey, you know, we detected that you're using this particular library. It has a vulnerability. And um, the most common response is, no, we're not using that. It's like, oh, yeah, you are. Uh, you're not using it directly, but this library that you're using is using it. Um, and if you think about it, we spend so much time with awareness training um, for our own developers, you know, how to write good code, we don't spend a lot of time on those open source libraries in there. And it, it's not possible, but that's also a very easy way where vulnerabilities can get in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also a little bit scary in terms of those vulnerabilities are more publicly disclosed. So you get a CVE that says there's a vulnerability in this library um, and everyone knows about it. There might be some exploits, some proof of concepts written for that. And then they can go, oh, I'll just try it and just spray it around the web and see what works. So you've got those kind of things. And another thing is also how secure are the development processes for those developers? And I'm talking about development processes. I'm not talking about the coding itself, but in terms yeah. of, of keeping their code safe. I'll give you an example. Like um, for most companies, you probably have 2FA to actually... Um, go onto your VPN or, yeah. or log into yeah. um, your source code repository. Um, there, the machine you use is secure, is locked down potentially. Um, yeah. You know, there's some sort of password policy that you have to change your password. You can't use <laughs> the same password yep. across everything. Um, and a lot of open source development teams don't usually have that. Um, a lot of open source, some of it is sponsored by companies. But a lot of it are people who are doing it as their hobby, um, something they do part time, you know, 
as part of giving back to the community. They're, they're, they're contributing their evenings and all doing that. Yeah. And some of these applications are actually pretty old too. So they haven't been really looked after. You know, the developer who who started this did it seven years ago before there was MFA, you know, when passwords mm-hmm. were the same password used for your email yeah. password and everything. Yeah. Um, so that's that's where we're kind of shifting in terms of security a little bit. It's also um, there is this whole other team that is not your team that's contributing to your code that you are ultimately accountable for that you're releasing to your customers that um, yep. you need to stay on top of. Yep. Yeah, so to your point about having, I guess, a, a, a for lack of a better word, a random team contributing into your uh into your core um, repository. The other challenge that I've noticed with open source, and I don't know if you kind of uh, see this as well, is a lot of the open source code is not maintained. Like a lot of times I've had conversations about application batching, and it turns out that the open source library you're using is three, four years old, no one's maintaining it. Well, you could take on the job of batching it and updating the CVE that has come out, but do you really want to spend time doing that? Like, do you kind of have see those kind of conversations as well? Absolutely, I, and um, you know that's that's so common. A lot of times, what I what I've seen, and, and I'm guilty of myself of doing that when I was doing actively doing a lot of development, is you you do that copy and paste. You know, it works. Yeah. You're like, yes, <laughs> it has validated. It does what I want to do. Yeah, I'm gonna move my ticket now. It's a sprint over. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Check in, commit. Yep. And I'll, I'll never look at it again until I'm trying to do something else and it breaks it. Um, yep. Or something happens. You know, I have to use a new version of Java or or this yep. new library I'm pulling in. Or even you move on to that. another company and you just lose. Let someone else worry about that. That's right. So so that's that's quite common and um, the way that gets brought up. Sometimes, um, or, or, or for me, is when the security person myself comes to you and say, "Hey, this library you're using has some vulnerability," yep. and you're like, "Oh, gee, it's, it's ten years old. Um, if it's not properly maintained, you're like, oh, what am I gonna do? But if it is maintained, you're like, oh, I got ten years worth of patches to put in there. Yep. I hope it's backwards compatible. Um, it probably isn't, so it's gonna be a lot of work in there. Um, and what we're trying to I think there's two things. The first one is you could have a better selection process. The selection mm-hmm. process is not just it works. Let's just go with it. It also depends on the quality of the um, the developers who are developing this open source stuff. Like with with npm stuff, um, npm has just grown exponentially in the last few years. Um, you know the number yep. of libraries going. I think last year we were seeing about. I'm gonna tr- no. I better not show any numbers because you guys might validate me for that. Uh, but a lot of there's a lot of first time um, contributors who is publishing that there are libraries out there uh, mm-hmm. in npm, and and it's all good. But you want to make sure that you know that there is some longevity to the apps that are being released. Yep. You know, um, I'm pretty guilty myself. I've got two open source libraries out there that I haven't touched in years. Um, uh-huh. Hopefully, no one's using them. Um, but <laughs> if we put a disclaimer on the GitHub repository, I guess, <laughs> use it on risk. Yeah, that's right. Don't blame me for it. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, what we advocate is pick something that is popular. Use libraries that are very popular because there's a higher chance that it is going to be maintained. And if it's not, 
um, you or someone else, and there's a high chance of someone actually going in there and uh, contributing to it. And then another thing that's really important is there's going to be more eyes looking at the code, more people evaluating those codes to make sure that if there's anything malicious in there or any code that has been written in a way where it introduces a vulnerability, it gets picked up. So, mm -hmm. so that's what we do in terms of let's try and pick something um, that is popular. So we're trying to put popularity in there. And the next thing that we try to advocate is you should upgrade constantly. You should be um, constantly updating. Updates usually fix bugs. Um, they also fix security issues, and it makes it a lot easier. Um, so we're trying to advocate that as part of part of just quality. Um, mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to push is that hey, you know, for development teams um, right now, I don't know about most companies, but security seems to be a um, a reaction, right? So something happens, you fix it. Um, we've got all these open source libraries. We're not going to upgrade it until the security team flags it, and then we upgrade it. So it's the problem is when it's flagged, someone's already discovered it, disclosed it. They've obviously reviewed it, and then they put the fix out there, and then it, somehow that Intel fits its way into your tooling. So it's a little bit of a gap in terms of when that vulnerability is out there, probably for, yep. with a I guess an exploit, um, a, a publicly available exploit to when you actually address it. So what we're saying is, why don't you just upgrade constantly? So there's tools out there. I know GitHub, which, um, maybe last year quite like Dependabot, where there's a thing that goes in there and whenever there's a new version, you upgrade automatically. You see that with mobile phones now, where um, I know with my iPhone, I used to have to go to the App Store and upgrade it manually. Now they just do it for you constantly. You know, just oh, yeah. constantly That's get the main the upgrades. So we're trying to push for that. Make better choices when you're selecting your open source libraries and um, spend the tax on there. You know, you're saving so much time really by not having to write the functionality. You need to pay the tax, the maintenance tax to just keep making sure it's up to date uh, in there. So what we're advocating is uh, for, for development teams, you know, every month set aside one or two days where you just upgrade it. Or mm. you have to think when, whenever you make any changes to your code, spend a bit of time to just update everything before you make those changes. So um, that's what we're trying to advocate down here. Uh, interesting. I think I love it to a point about maintenance acts. It's a good way to put it. Like, I think it's great uh, that you, I mean, nothing is free in life, right? As they say. Uh, and except for good people and good company, I guess. Uh, but um, the interesting part over there for your from from yourself is i love the evolution that you kind of spoke about how and where you're trying to go towards encouraging people to constantly update i for i guess taking a step back and zooming out a bit for people who are starting off today you spoke about that awareness presentation that you did in your organization now was that i'm assuming that was internally and uh that was that to say the leadership team to get their buying or was that across the developers so that they understand the importance of what they write? Or I'm keen to know as to where, I guess, at what level does that awareness work or that worked for you? And the evolution of going into tooling, would you recommend say going for SaaS versus a Dash versus a software composition first? Yeah, so with the awareness, it's both. You need to have support from leadership, um, and then you need to have support from the people who are actually going to be the one 
um, securing the applications. Uh, with the leadership bit, it's it's quite interesting. Um, you need to, there needs to be a reason why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. What what's the value of doing security? Um, for us, it's pretty simple. We're trying to get a a full banking license. You know, there's a higher bar in terms of what we want to do to build uh, trust with our customers. Um, so that is um, a very compelling reason. Um, different companies have different reasons in there, and I guess um, you got to find what works for you. And then once you get that support in there, and I'm, maybe I'll talk about why that support is important to have leadership support. Sure. If you don't have the leadership support, they'll just say yes to security, but just make sure it doesn't get in the way of everything else. Um, then you'll be struggling a little bit because um, you have targets or deadlines for a feature release or for, for work to get done. And when those targets are coming close, and they always seem to be always uh, behind schedule. Um, you know, they're always very optimistic people. And when targets are coming close, you don't want it to be a situation where security is one of the things that you try and compromise. You kind of go, well, what can we cut? Let's cut security. If you don't have buy-in from um, from the, the leadership team, that's what's yep. going to happen. If you do, you can then say that this is the bare minimum. This is what we wouldn't compromise on. You know, uh, We won't ship uh, products that are broken to our customers, and we also won't ship this, uh, anything that's below this level of security. This is our risk appetite um, yep. in there. So that's why it's important for that. Um, and it's also important then for developers themselves to have this awareness because then they would actually want to do it. Um, you, you might have support from management, but if the developers are not really interested, they're, not, they're going to do it half-heartedly. Uh, they're going to do the bare minimum. They're only going to do what you highlight to them. Uh, what we found really interesting was when we did our awareness piece in that presentation, um, the weeks after that, people were coming up to us and going, hey, I found this too. I found that too. You know, And I'm like, great. You know, um, let's, let's fix it. Or how can we prevent this from happening? You know, We're all about test-driven development. What kind of tests can we can we put in there? Yeah. Um, what can we put in our libraries, you know, that we're, we're saying that, hey, use this library for for doing this particular function functionality. What can we put in there so that security is something that is in there, you know, we're secure by default. It is the path of least resistance, you know, just by taking all these Tyro libraries, you know, you get all this for free and it's yeah. secure. Um, and if it's not, you know, a, a, a test would break and you go, oh, yes, I got to do this. So that, that's that. So that is that is quite important. Um, yeah. So those, I think, are the two main things in there. Did I, there's another question, was it? I, I kind of yeah, so I, the follow-up question was, so once you've kind of got the leadership buy-in and the developer buy-in, where would you recommend people start in terms uh, of yeah. what, what's the, what's the, what the foundational thing, which is probably not too hard because you don't probably want to, I mean, recommend something which would be too hard to start off with, you know, mm-hmm. on a climb a mountain the first day. So what would you recommend people start with from a tooling perspective? Where should they start, I guess? Yeah. So so my personal view on on tooling is, so you, you've got the SAS, the DAS, um, you've got all that. I've, you want to start with something that doesn't have a lot of false positives. So I'm going to take the SAS out from that initially because SAS <laughs> requires a lot of tuning. Yeah, um, yeah. I feel that you have, with security, you have three chances. You know, if you have a tool in there and it's always flagging, you know, false positives, people are initially going to be excited from your awareness training. They're going to look at it and investigate yeah. it and they're going like, 
this doesn't make any sense. Um, and feed that back to you. Um, and you're going to make some changes and like, hey, you know, it's working out. They'll trust you still. They'll still use it. The second time, they'll be a bit disgruntled. The third time, they're just going to start writing everything off. It's like it's a false positive. It's a false positive. Every mm-hmm. issue is like someone crying wolf. So I would say don't do those because after a while, it doesn't become... Um, it, it doesn't become relevant. It's not very effective anymore as a security control unless you can roll something out where you have a high confidence that what you you roll out is actually a security issue. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say an SCA would be a good one because it's all yeah. based on CVEs and all. So uh, you, you would have challenges in terms of, oh, this vulnerability doesn't apply to us. But there is still a vulnerability in there. So, so it's not really a false positive. It's just that, hey, we're using this library um, that doesn't that's which vulnerability doesn't apply to the way we're using our application and that's fine so I'll, yeah. I would start with those easy things in there um, I would also start with having um, you do some pen testing to figure out what are the common things that we are doing consistently in terms of yep. security vulnerabilities and then think of what are some of the easy ways I can test for this uh, what kind of tooling can I have? Uh, you could maybe, it's almost like stack analysis. It's like grapping, right? You're just grapping for those kind of stuff. Or you could yeah. write unit tests. If if the languages are quite constant with your company, you have fixed frameworks, you can actually write something and contribute for those kind of stuff. And they're like, hey, these are the standard set of security stories uh, to think about when you're developing uh, some sort of functionality. And by yeah. the way, here are some li- um some unit tests that you can go in there, you know, buffer overflow is quite common in, in Java libraries, right? Hey, yep. you just, just put this in and then that's how you test for that. Uh, or mass assignment, use this library, use this test here. And so those kind of things are what I would recommend. Uh, something that doesn't have a lot of false positive. Uh, stuff like a desk, that requires a whole setup. If you don't have a staging environment to run it, um, might be hard to so. I would say start really small, start really simple, start with things that are definitely security issues. Uh, yep. For us, it was pen testing and finding common stuff and then try and write test code uh, to, to identify that and mm-hmm. open source libraries because that's 85% of our code covered right there. Uh, and talking about open source, there's a question from, uh, or I guess more of a statement from Darpan and he's watching live on LinkedIn and his comment is, since OS is a kind of free, it's I think it's important to add licenses to the repo as well. So developers who use it are also encouraged to contribute back with updates. Do you know, share any thoughts on that? And um, what are your thoughts on licenses? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's not security, but it is a very important thing too. It's, it's a legal thing. So, um, for us, it's quite interesting because we have the, the, the tooling that does, um, I guess, that does our security um, open source vulnerabilities also does our licenses. Oh, right. And, and that brings me to a really interesting thing too. So another thing that you should have, you should be able to have a list of all the open source dependencies that your company is using. Have a bill of material. Because the worst thing you want is reading on, on, on Reddit or something about, hey, you know, all they found in this particular open source library and you're asking yourself, do we use this? Um, if you have a bills of material, you can straight go in and go, yes, we do, or no, we don't, or we're using this particular versions. And it's quite interesting too, when you start doing that, you might go, oh, gee, I'm using seven different versions of uh, this particular library within my company. What's oh. happening there? 
And to so your that's, point, that's really important. So to, sorry, just to add to that, if what if you have a large code base which you've been writing and contributing into for years? <laughs> where, where, where does one start? I guess on that, but yeah, it's a it's a challenge. Is there any uh, tool that you've found it's easier, or is it, is it more? Is there, is there a tool that you've tried and worked with that it worked that you can probably share, or is it more spreadsheet and kind of like an asset register that people maintain that you've seen around? No. Um, asset registers that you maintain are, I don't recommend those because they get all they get outdated very very easily. Um, mm. And, and it's, it's additional work to try and do that. So there are a few ways you could do that. Um, one of the ways, we, we have a few different ways. The main way we do it is we have our main um, repository, our, our main uh, open source repository. You, you, I think there's two main ones, right? There's Artifactory and there's uh, um, Nexus Manager, right? Repo Manager. So there's two things. And what we've set up is when our build agents are building the pipeline, it doesn't pull its open source libraries from anywhere else, but the, from that particular source only. So it has to come through that. Right, so right. Also, basic changes from here. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, cut you off. Didn't want to cut you off, but I think it's really interesting that you mentioned about, um, I, I guess the, the the places it can impact. But um, I wanted to switch gears a bit as well because um, what I think the territory that we're going into without calling calling it out the name is DevSecOps. What is DevSecOps? So. DevSecOps is a mindset, right? I feel like it's it's a progression, right? So it started off with DevOps. And in my mind, DevOps started when developers are going, hey, you know, the operations team are very slow in, in trying to roll out the changes that we want, you know. Um, and, it, and that was because there was two different mindsets. Developers were all motivated by getting features out the door, you know, they're quick, let's get out there, let's innovate, let's be fast. Operations are responsible for the smooth running of the application itself. You know, they want they don't want a lot of change. They want stability. You know, any change, yep. anything that's broken, they're on the hook for it. Um, for that. So there was that friction where dev were going, hey, let's just go fast. And then I was going, wait a minute, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? What is the plan in, in case this goes over at 2 a.m. in the morning? What do we do? Um, so that's where that happens. And then they decided, um, for us, it was more about it. And the idea of you build it, you run it. So it's no longer the thing where dev looks after building it and then throwing it over to ops who looks after it for the rest of its life. So, you know, just constantly just giving you more and more stuff. It's now you're building it and you're also on call. You're the ones who's maintaining it. Um, yep. And it kind of makes sense because you understand it best. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting I remember seeing was, uh, when you have a, an issue at 2 a.m. in the morning, the operations guy would be, let's try and do the least amount of changes because I'm quite tired. I was, what can we do just to fix it? Whereas the dev would go into the code and go, what code changes can I make to fix this? You know, Let's try and change everything. But, but the idea, I think that's the idea of how DevOps came about. And, and then DevSecOps is something that people put in there in terms of, hey, security shouldn't be something that you do at the end. It's something that it's a mindset that you want to do in there. Um, so it, the, the, I think that word came in there just to hide the fact that security is just as important. You know, it's yep. something that you shouldn't be thinking about at the end. It should be something that's part of, and, and I guess accountability should be in that same group of people too for DevSecOps. Now, the book that, um, that, 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 uh, 
failures in devs and cops. Yeah, that was actually quite an interesting book. Um, I think it was three years ago, and that is a collection of stories that uh, a bunch of of, of, uh, of folks and friends of mine got together and and wrote that. And it actually came out because we were actually speaking at a conference in RSA Singapore three years ago, mm-hmm. and we're having, uh, I guess, after conference drinks, and we're talking about you know trying just I guess pick each other's brains, and so we're trying to do this. Um, and, and the good thing about networking is trying to learn about all the mistakes people make so that when yep. you're trying to do something, you won't go down the same path. So they'll be saying yep. things like, oh, I'm trying to roll out a SAS. What should I do? And the first thing's like, oh, don't do this, don't do that. And we then, for some reason, progress the stories in terms of my disaster is worse than yours. <laughs> oh, what have you got? <laughs> and and I, I think we walked away going, wow, you know, this this is actually really interesting. You know, we a lot of times on on at conferences or at meetups or even just um, on the internet, we always talk about what went well, you know, this is how we do it. And we don't always talk about what went wrong, what the failures are, which uh, in my mind are just as important because that tells you what you should be avoiding or or some of the pitfalls that, you know, don't go down that path. Yep. So hence we wrote this book about the things that we tried to do um, that we thought was going to be really good but they were a fail. So the book's called Epic Failures in DevSecOps. So, um, so my mine was about threat modeling. So we, we tried to roll out threat modeling to the whole company. This was that whole initially, um, the phases that we had. So we, right. we've got the awareness in, we've got the tooling in, we're like, all right, we're gonna do threat modeling. We're gonna try and understand this. Went online, look at this Microsoft threat modeling. They got this yep. dread process. Um, it was yep. pretty dreadful. Um, <laughs> It was a way of thinking about threats. And we, we were like, all right, you know, this is created by Microsoft. It seems to be, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the We try and put it out there to the developers. Um, and I, I think we didn't approach it pro- correctly. Um, just people just hated it. It was just too, um, it was too long a process. It was too rigid. It wasn't something that was very, um, very enjoyable. And it was because we also had a microservices architecture. So we had so many microservices and people didn't really see how that made sense for um, the threat modeling approach that we were trying to put in there. So we did a lot of stuff uh, in there. We tried to force people to do it. That went so far. Um, Then we ran well. Uh, People were were losing support. People are just going to security shit. Or they start looking at us and going, this is terrible. So we started shifting away a little bit in terms of uh, going on a path of of test code, you know, yep. we have code that actually verifies certain thing, and and that worked for us then because we had very standard standardized ways of doing things. You know, we had one way of doing logging, we have one way of connecting to a database. You know, everyone uses the same kind of database um, software and, and the same libraries used uh, with the same way of doing intersystem off. You know, everyone is the same. So we then had all these libraries in there and the threat modeling was all essentially um, like a big unit test that just right. verified all the controls in there. So that was what, what worked for us back then. Um, yeah. I'm going to switch gears. So towards the end, I kind of ask these fun questions, which are non-technical, just to know you as a person so that the audience gets to know you as a person as well. So three questions. First, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on application security or... Uh, doing your regular full-time job, I guess. So really interesting is I still spend some time with security. So I've 
I've been installing um, lots of security monitoring tools in my home network. You know, all right. Been, I've just got a, um, a Pi hole set up, which blocks like ads going out. I've got a Grafana server uh, running to tell me, you know, when the doors get open. Um, Whoa, when, doing when into IoT, dabbing happening. into IoT. So, yeah, now. so I've been been dabbling with that a little bit. Currently installing a security onion just to see what's happening, and a lot of it is. You think it's paranoia? It's not really. It's just you know, just having hands on the tools, you know, just having some fun, learning about certain things, and just tinkering. It's just like being a oh, software. I don't engineer. think it's it's paranoia. I think it's just awareness, right? I mean, would you not want to know what's going out of your house? I guess in terms of network activity, it's just something that you can't see usually. I mean, that's how I see it. So I, I'm totally with you. I was gonna ask you for recommendation maybe after the interview. Then what do you reckon? What your experience has been? Sounds like we need to have another talk about that later on. Yeah, um, sounds good. Yeah. The second question is, what is something that you're proud of, but is not on your social media? Ooh, something that I'm proud of um, that is not on my social media. That's really interesting. Uh, it is a tough one because this, I'm trying to think of what would, would, would be what I could share. Um, I guess the main thing I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of is, um, so I've, I, I'm an avid scuba diver, so I do a lot of scuba diving. Um, oh, nice. I'm actually a, a dive instructor, so I teach diving too. And, oh wow! Um, I've been doing that for so I've been teaching for about um, twelve years now. So I'm I'm pretty proud no of that. Way. Wow! And what I'm really proud of that, or what I'm really what I really like about it is when you do a lot of scuba diving. After a while, and, and all, most of the diving is in Sydney around there. So after a while, you take it for granted. You're going like, oh yeah, it's just a shark. It's, not, it's just boring. And teaching diving is quite rewarding because you take students who've who've never been in the water for the first time and they're looking at it and going, oh my God, that's amazing. And it makes you appreciate um, what you have in your back. Yeah, like you don't have to go to Cairns or anywhere to, to have good diving. So, so that's right. what I'm, 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 I'm really, um, what I really enjoy. Yeah. Is there a particular spot for scuba diving that you really like in Sydney that people can kind of, for people from Sydney can check out or anyone who's coming to Sydney can check out? Oh, they're all pretty good spots. I, I probably not can't really pick anyone in particular. Uh, there is one near uh, near Canal. It's called the Leap. Um, okay. It's like a a, dr a drift dive. You got to jump in at the correct tide, otherwise you might go out into the ocean rather than back to shore. So you, oh you know, shit! Oh, it's, it's a drift <laughs> those, dive. Uh, yeah. Oh right. Okay. One of those uh, advanced ones, I guess. <laughs> you could say so. It just takes a bit of planning before you get in the water. Yep. I only had a couple of experiences with scuba diving, but it definitely is quite, um, it's such a different world out down there. It's not even funny. Um, the final question that I have is, what's your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share with people? I actually like uh, Asian food. So I, there's this place near my work, um, has great laksas. And that's where I go when it's on a cold, rainy day, or oh, it is rainy yes. right now. And yes. it's, it's just nice and warm. So I have, I've, I've like, I like Asian cuisine. Uh, Malaysian food's pretty good. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Papa Rich. Laksa's on a hot day, on a, on a cold day. It's, yeah. Yep. I mean, I'm a big uh, Papa Rich fan as well. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing how they've been able to blend different Asian food cuisines. I think Malaysian food definitely has that. Like, it has like a combination of different cultural food in one spot which is just amazing like i've in the same restaurant i've had indian singaporean and like there's different variations of it i don't know if, that, if that's how you see malaysian food as well but i love i love that about malaysian food yeah no same here 
Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Edwin. I really appreciate it. It was really entertaining at the same time as uh, it was educational as well. Thank you so much for taking the time out for this, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I really enjoy being on here. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.